Hello there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Blank. I am super excited that you're here. Now, it's been a tough time finding deals this year. I mean, Q1 was super hot, can't find deals then. Then COVID hit, can't find deals then. So it's been super hard to find deals, yet people are still doing deals. In fact, I was really excited that some of our mentoring students in our mentoring program just closed their deal. And a shout out to Bernie Lund, Justin Elliott, and Steve Chen, who joint ventured to close on a $1.4 million deal, 29 units, and they each raised about $250,000 each. So congratulations to you guys. And we have several students that are closing deals in the next few weeks and some who have closed deals actually during COVID as well. So if you want to find out more about the mentoring program, go to themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor and set up a strategy session uh, with us. If you value mentorship, you have the ability to invest in yourself. That is the best money you can invest versus any kind of real estate you can actually buy. So check that out. Really consider it because it allows you to accelerate the time frame and avoid big mistakes. So congratulations again. Again, for us at Nighthawk Equity, which is our investment firm, it's been a real challenge. We've looked at far over 100 deals all year, and we are just now doing our first deal of 2020. Not for lack of trying. We've got close a few times as well. And you know, at the heart of that is really Garrett Lynch, our, our director of acquisitions, who has been tirelessly working on a deal, and now we're finally closing one. It's 130 in Atlanta. And I wanted to kind of pick his brain a little bit and, and just kind of, hey, you know, how did we get here? What are our, you know, how do we select our markets? How do we underwrite deals? How does he build relationships with brokers uh, so that they give him these off-market deals? How does he stay in touch with those people? How does he change his underwriting to accommodate what's going on in the market where I, with COVID and the debt and different things we're finding right now? So this is kind of be going to be a deep dive on how do you find deals? How do you underwrite deals? How do you close deals? What's working right now? And, and Garrett has years of experience in this particular uh, category of multifamily investing. And so let's get him on the show here. Without further ado, let's get right into the show with Garrett Lynch. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Block. Garrett Lynch, welcome to the show. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I look forward to jamming here. You know, we have meetings like this every single week where we kind of talk about, hey, what's on the what's in the pipeline? Because you're our bulldog deal finder. You do so many other things. We're going to talk about deal finding today. We're going to talk about underwriting and maybe negotiating. And it's been a tough year uh, finding deals. It has been tough. <laughs> it really has. We're just in the process of closing our first uh, deal in 2020, and it's not for lack of trying. Tell us a little bit about, you know. First of all, how long you've been doing this, like the deal finding thing? So I'm going on, man, I'm going on probably nine years of deal finding. I had about a year of cutting my teeth in the industry and, and then the rest was just finding deals. And that's, I figured out that was the best way for me to add value to the industry in general. And I like doing it. So I started out, yeah, a while ago doing starting out, but mostly like my strategies changed quite a bit from when I got started. But yeah, I've been, been at this for a while. Okay. How has your strategy changed since you got started? Well, in the beginning I had, I only knew the South side of Chicago. So I was finding deals that we found out after we bought them, that they had a very heavy cash flow and they're D-class deals and really not a lot of equity. So I, f I figured that out the hard way, but we, I was buying, we were buying portfolios of two flats, three flats and single family homes in the South side of Chicago, section eight stuff. And so I would just look for that. And it was a price per door. You just tried to find the best price per door you could get on them. They're all kind of the same. 
because, you know, the tenants mess them up anyways. So that was my first start in there. I was good at that. Uh, so we found a lot of those cash flow heavy properties. And then we started to get into, you know, the mid-sized multifamilies, like 70, 70 units to 120. And then we bought our first deal in Memphis that was 380 units. And that was like a big jump in size. And so then, you know, but we still, my strategy was more so before I met you guys was just finding the best price per door, not looking at a ton of metrics and comparing it to others in the market. And so what I, my first portfolio was 3,400 units and I sourced over 70% of those deals personally before exiting that and jumping in with you guys. And then I got a lot more granular on what exactly are we looking for? What is our strategy? You know, how do we underwrite to get that exact metric and dialing that in uh, so that we, we don't step outside of our box? You know, we, we set certain rules in place on the underwriting. And so it's really been dialed in a lot more from my initial strategy until now where we're repositioning, you know, C plus to B minus deals into solid Bs. Um, yeah. And it's been an effective strategy so far. Well, here's the thing. I mean, yes, your, your strategy has changed over the years, but so has ours. And what I always say that people who do their first deal, great, got to do the first deal because it triggers the law of the first deal. But you're never going to do that deal again. In fact, you look back in your first deal like, God, why did I do that dumb deal? What a dumb deal. Why did I do that? You know, and people kind of beat themselves up over that. And, you know, certainly I did over my, two, I would never do my 12 unit deal again. And you wouldn't do whatever on the south of Chicago. However, here's the thing. You know, it's that deal got us to where we are today. So we can, beating ourselves up is, is kind of pointless, it's senseless. However, you know, even for Nighthawk Equity, we have started to get some clarity around what we, what we want. And early on, because of the deal desk where people brought us deals and people watching, listen, go to the, go to the michaelblank.com forward slash partner and learn more about that. We have this deal desk where you can bring deals. And in the beginning, that's kind of how we built our portfolio, which served us really well. The problem with that is we were over here, we were over there, we were buying this size, we're going to buy that size. And yeah, we noticed that uh, over time, as you build your portfolio, it became very difficult to manage these portfolios consistently. And in the beginning, it doesn't matter as much. You can have one over here, one over here, just to get your track record. But how, how have we started dialing in kind of our criteria over the last few years? Yeah, so the, the dial-in is, it's a, it's a learning process in general. Obviously, it's, I think it's more important to get your first deal done as long as it makes sense and it's going to be profitable. Obviously, you don't want to go backwards. But it was me working with you guys in the beginning, and we had to have discussions around what is our next deal going to look like? What's our capacity on the equity raise? What is our capacity on the debt? What kind of debt can we get? What does that structure look like? And then what is our next deal going to be based on what those metrics are? So we were saying, hey, we think that we could raise, you know, we did on our last deal, let's say 5 million. We think we could do 6 million on the next deal. So we need to look for deals that are somewhere in, you know, the 12 to $15 million range, right? So it's a progression based on what you are confident that you can do. You don't want to jump up and do a $35 million deal and your last deal was five because then you're not going to, the chances of you raising all that capital and getting the, qualifying for the debt, it makes that, uh, that range a lot harder to, to close that gap. And so I think with us, it was just figuring out, all right, what was our last deal? What's the next one? looking like on the capital stack side, the debt side, 
Where do we feel confident we could definitely achieve on our next deal and we're willing to risk money on the risk capital side to go after? And then, you know, let's find something that fits that, the strategy that we're doing, which is value, adding value to existing properties on the interior renovations and exterior renovations. And then the size, okay, what was our last size and what do we, do we want to push it a little bit? Do we want to stay the same? You know, what does that range look like? And so it was, it was those two things, I think, that allowed us to arrive at our, our next progressive, you know, deal in, in, in sequence. I think the other thing also we had a lot of discussion about is the area. Uh, we, have, uh, we have realized that going deep in one area has inherent benefits. Uh, we found that being spread out geographically, one property here, one property here, made it very difficult to manage that. And uh, talk a little bit about, about that uh, and the impact of co-locating deals in a particular area. Yeah, so a very simple example that I learned early on is if you have multiple deals in one market, somehow those deals perform better because you can share resources. So I had a deal, one of my best portfolios in Columbus, we had three deals in that market that were all over 300 units. And those were performing the best because if a manager left the property or staff went out, we could replace them really quickly with staff from another, hey, could you go cover this? So you're able to share resources in the markets. And so we've, we've done a similar thing. You know, in Memphis, there's quite a few assets that, you know, we have there and they, they have, there's a benefit to having that because you can pull resources from there to go to your other properties. And then also, you know, your asset manager or whoever's in charge of, of looking after the property, uh, you can hit a bunch of properties in one trip and go put your eyes on it a lot easier than having to fly, you know, over to, to LA and then to, you know, the other side, East coast and having a more centrally located portfolio in your markets is, has a ton of benefits. And we definitely found that. There's a lot of people who are looking in top tier markets and even from an investor standpoint, finding deals in Dallas or San Antonio, Houston, or some of these areas are super attractive. And a lot of people are looking there. There's nothing particularly wrong with that. Now we've decided to go somewhere else. We've decided to go into secondary tertiary markets, but how, and, and obviously you went to the South side of Chicago, right? So even the market selection criteria have changed over time, but, but talk about how do you, or how do we select markets or how should one select markets in general? Yeah. So you want to make sure that, you know, I, I honestly, the way that I start out is getting an idea of what markets have, you know, first off, I, I like, but there's a combination of just, it's not just having a market that you like, it's having enough resources to be able to operate once you get into it. Too many people, and also the inventory, you got to have inventory too, right? So as an example, you mentioned top tier markets, let's just use Dallas. Everybody loves Dallas. Okay. Well, there's a lot of groups that launch out there that want to buy in Dallas and you're dealing, you know, you're dealing with a lot of people that have been there forever and they're getting a lot of that deal flow. So you have a, a quite an uphill battle if you're just entering into Dallas just to begin there. So maybe you look at a market that's, you know, not quite Dallas where there is a ton of inventory, but it's not as overheated and you go in and check that out and you got to look at the population growth and the job growth and just overall economic growth of, of that market so that you're, you, you have a tailwind behind you versus a headwind. You can make money in any market, don't get me wrong, with the right strategy, but it's a lot easier if you're in markets where you have good things happening there so that you can achieve the higher rents that you're looking to get. And we found that to be true 
Absolutely. In our market selection, what we're looking now are more secondary markets in better locations where, where we can add value to a property. Maybe there's a, a property with all classic units that's in the best area of a market with great economics. And then we will you know, go deeper into that. And so I think um, you know, when you're looking at markets, you want to do your research and your homework on it, but understand that there has to be inventory and there has to be enough resources. And what I mean by that is our management staff and if there's only a handful of managers in a market, when you get in there, they go, they start, they cycle out and then you're stuck and the resources after you close. So if you look for those two things, I think you, you'll have a good shot. All right. So let's talk about you because you, you mentioned inventory a lot. And I think what you mean by that is enough deal flow, right? Because you yeah. need to analyze enough deals and make enough offers because it's a little bit of a numbers game. So yes. let's take a, a, one of our, you know, one of our markets is Huntsville. Fantastic market growing very, very rapidly, you know, rising tide, uh, but it's a smaller market. And how do we make up for the fact that it's a smaller market? What do we do to compensate for the lower inventory? So really the only thing you can do in that circumstance is to build deep relationships with the brokers that know where the deal flow is and even owners. So that's one market that you know we're in and we like a lot. So I've taken the time to meet with a lot of these brokers one-on-one, -on -one, getting to know them so that we get the, the first deal flow as, as it comes out. Uh, we're seeing all the stuff that we know about. I know about every single potential off-market deal that exists in there right now. And still, there's not a lot of options. So it's if you want to be in a market where there's less inventory in general, you just have to have all the right relationships in that market to be able to see what's coming out. And then if you have a reputation on top of that, that helps a lot too. Well, let's talk about uh, broker relationships. People always ask, well, how do you find deals? And my answer is always is brokers, brokers, brokers. Mm -hmm. And you just said again, brokers. We don't send out yellow letters. We don't put up bandit signs, you know, that kind of stuff. Now, we are starting to call owners and we can maybe shelve that for a second. But, but so far, the, the primary source has been brokers and more specifically because of relationships off-market or semi-off-market deal, especially uh, the more recent uh, more recent ones. But how do you build, uh, think back when you first started calling into Huntsville or you first started calling into wherever you were calling into, you know, and maybe our reputation precedes us, but let's say it doesn't, right? How do you build rapport with that broker and how do you get them to not only take you seriously, but then actually call you with off-market deals? Well, you need to stand out. Yeah. And the way you stand out is you have to think what most people are doing to them. All right. Most people are tire kickers. They see a lead on LoopNet or Crexy or something. They hit the button to get the info and then they never respond. Once they figure out the numbers don't work. So the first thing that you can do to stand out is to just give them an answer back. If you like the deal or if you don't like the deal, get back to them quickly and let them know either way. Call them up. Hey, we, we love the deal. We'd love to make an offer. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to send it over today. Fast or we'll wait for the call to offers and we'll compete, okay? The second thing is if you, if you don't like a deal, call them back and say, you know what, we don't like it for X, Y, Z, but we'd really like to be on your list. We'd love to see the, give it a first look. We have this track record over here. We, or, you know, I'm partnered with this person that has this track record and, you know, we want to get on your short list and we're willing to do whatever it takes. So many people don't do that. No, they don't. I remember asking some of our brokers uh, how many people actually respond when they blast an email. Only 20% actually got back to them. So standing out, you're now in the top 20%. Now, what else do you do to kind of build rapport with uh, brokers? 
Yeah. So another thing you got to think about is they're, they all have deep relationships with other people as well. And so it's really touching and calling them and becoming friends with them, relating to them in some way. If you go into town, taking a second to meet with them for coffee or lunch, one thing that a lot of these brokers never even see the clients that they work with, you get in front of them and, and relate to them in some way and build that relationship where they feel friendly with you. You even tell them about if you got another deal going on or whatever, and you start sharing your successes with them. I think that goes a long way. Like I, I'll give you an example. The deal that we have now was listed with another broker in, in Atlanta and they had it listed and then it went to another brokerage and I told her all about it and how we're under contract on it. And she was like, Oh my God, I got, and I've never done a deal with her. And we have this great rapport and I just keep it very open. And you know, we've, I went to NMHC is a really good way to really quickly get through and meet those people. They're all What's NMHC, NMHC? Garrett. What's NMHC? It's a, it's a conference. It's held once a year um, where literally every broker under the sun goes to it. You just go to that conference and meet them. It's worth it. It's worth the, the money. Right, just to summarize what, what, what Garrett is saying here, sometimes uh, or frankly, you know, often you can accelerate the, the, the relationship building by, by getting together in person with the broker. I mean, yeah. even in this environment, and, and you know, you <laughs> you're kind of a crazy guy, but you've actually flown around, and 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 you can see the result of that because right now people are like, oh no, I'm not, I'm not flying, I'm not dry, I'm not going anywhere. And so you talked about standing out. You stand out as someone who hops on a plane, goes there, spends some time with a broker, visits some property, and they're like, wow, this guy is amazing. And this is not the first and only time I've I've heard this. People who are doing deals right now do the same exact thing. They're literally driving or flying and they're building relationships with, uh, with brokers. Anything else you can think of before we move on? Yeah. It's good stuff. If you compete on a deal and you lose, mm. that builds a ton of rapport right there. So even mm. if you lose, I've lost so many deals this year. What? Those brokers don't forget. It's a numbers game. Remember, you, I've been disheartened. I've been crushed. I've gotten my soul ripped out of my chest so many times this year. And I just, you get back up and you try again. And Tell me more, Garrett. I, I didn't know you were crushed and your soul was... <laughs> you know, but I, I, hid, I hid most of them. But most of the well, time, I'm well, like... Share with, share with the audience, because here's the thing I hear all the time. You know, I, I, I've, I've been making offers and I'm not getting anything. Well, how many offers did you make? Two or three? Like, okay, give us a little, a little more. What does Garrett do on a number of daily basis? I, I underwrite hundreds of deals. I have a process. So I would say you, if you're not good at underwriting, you got to get good at it. That's one skill you need to pick up is figure out how to underwrite. You can take an online course. Michael's got a great underwriting tool. You got to figure out how to do it so that you can burn through deals quick and understand what's a deal and what's not. It's going to help you in all facets of the business. So I would say you got to get good at that so that you can go through a lot of deals quickly you know, some people rely on analysts, fine, but those are the bigger guys that got companies and they don't want to maybe deal with that. If you're trying to find a deal, you got to get good at that skill. And you get the OM, the T12 and rent roll and you underwrite the deal. You can underwrite it in a day and get the initial underwriting done. And then if it's a good, if it's a good deal, try to make an offer pretty fairly quickly or at least know when the call to offers is so that you can compete. And so then you're in the competition or you're, you know, there's typically right now there's a competition going on, but you have an offer out, you know where the pricing is, and now you're in front of a broker, you're building rapport with the broker, okay? And you're probably gonna lose a few times or many times, 
but at least mm. you took a stab at it. You started that rapport building process. And then when a great deal comes, think about it. You just need one. One deal could change your life if you have never done one, or even if you have. There's a lot of things that there are a lot of good things about that, but it's it's always I learned this early in sales when I was doing knife sales door to door. It's a numbers game. You're you're going to get better at your percentages and your your you know your pitch and your closing ratio and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you still you're gonna be you got to put those offers out there. You got to get the underwriting. The funnel has to be as big as possible, starting with the deal flow, going to the underwriting, then going to the LOIs. And then eventually you're going to get a deal. That's how it works. That's the funnel. You it has been a little it. disheartening and, and you're, you're closer to it because you're, you're kind of on the forefront. You're going through these buyers interviews. You're putting these packages together. You're spending hours and hours getting into the best and final. Then, oh, there's a best and best and final. And then at the end, then you, you lose after all that. Yeah. Hours and hours. Of, you, know, you, you just want to throw up your hands and go, this is for the birds. And then you have to get back on the bike. You can't. You can't slow down. So like there was one specific instance. I flew to North Carolina. I checked out three deals. One I I really wanted really bad. I did everything you could possibly do. Wrote the offer. Came in with hard money. Built a, a great relationship with the broker. Had the debt lined up. I was ready to pull the trigger and take this thing down. We had the track record. We had everything. And... I'm like ready to win. I'm so, and I, the waiting is the hardest part, right? You're waiting for like a week to hear back from the seller. And I'm like, please have an answer for me. Please have an answer. This is worth millions of dollars. Okay. This, this is right. And I get a call on a Friday and a broker goes, Hey man, the, the other guy that dropped this out of contract, he's coming back in. He's going to put 600 K hard day one on a $10 million deal. It was only a $10 million deal. And he goes, and I, he's like, unless you guys can do that. And I'm like, I can't, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> like that's, it's, it's ludicrous. I was like, I had to take like that one. I was mad for 10 minutes instead of five. Well, what do you, what do you do to recover? Because I, you know, I, I, I see you going through a process and I think it took a long, longer than 10 minutes, Gary. What, what do you do? What do you do when there's such a, you know, such a disappointment? You have to remind yourself that there are things that are out of your control. And as long as you're doing the process over and over again, and that's that you you just do that you do the same process. You know it can work. You've seen it work. You have to play. It's a more of a mental game, and you have to be ready for that. And so you have to, you know, there's nothing that beats repetition. You need to lose. You need to get in there and lose, and and feel what that feels like. I feel it inside of you that the hurt and and how upset you are. And then you need to take that and channel it into your next, your next quest. All right, I'm going to use what I learned in that one, and I'm going to get back on the bike, and I'm going to try it again. And maybe I'll win that one, and maybe I won't. And be okay with either result. Mm-hmm. If you're okay with either winning or losing, regardless, you know, you're going to give it your best shot. You know, everything you're doing, there are things that are out of your control. And if you do it enough, eventually you're going to get one fish. All you need is one. Yeah, so true. It's you're really committing to the outcome and the being process. okay with. Yeah, Who says that? Hello, Rod. That's, yeah, the miracle equation you're is, is you're committing the to the process. That, that's right. You're committing to the process because yeah. the outcome is then inevitable once you, you do that. The outcome's inevitable. You say, listen, I'm just going to do the steps over and over and over again. And eventually, hopefully, something hits. I don't know when. It, it may not happen now, this year. It may but the take- other thing, it's. 
it's it's not all lost because when you do lose a deal, it's not all lost because number one, you've learned a lot. Uh, you probably expand your comfort zone, your confidence, but also you build a rapport with this with this broker. I mean, you lost yeah. this deal in North Carolina. What what was the broker's opinion of you after that? I mean, oh, he he was like, I got to get you another one. I got to get you one. That was his. He he felt like he let me down. Mm-hmm. Even though it was out of both of our control at that point, yeah, yeah. you know, he took me through the, the whole thing. I came to the table, I played the game and I lost and he felt indebted to me almost. And so we, we've kept a good rapport since then and he knows that we're serious. Yeah, that's right. So it's actually, there's a benefit coming, coming from that. Not as good as a deal, but still a very strong benefit. And in fact, that may actually lead to, a, to another deal, which leads me to this other thing. This deal we have right now currently in Atlanta it was actually a deal that, I don't know, did we take a swing at that earlier? Did we maybe lose that? In other words, what, what happens when you get outbid by something? Do you track that deal? Do you move on? Like- yeah, so a really good practice is even if you get outbid and you lose a deal, put their timeline in your calendar so that you can follow up on when they go under contract, when they go hard, and, and then check in with the broker. Hey, did they put it under contract? And you know, and the timeline there is about send up seven to ten days. Did they actually go under contract on that? Okay. And then if they did, all right. Did how's everything going? Check in day fifteen. Mm-hmm. Check in in day thirty. Did they go hard? Once they go hard, there's a good chance it's closing. So you could still check in, but realistically, you if you track it, put it in your calendar to check back in on it. If for whatever reason it falls apart, which happens a lot, actually. A lot, yeah. It happens all the time. You're the next guy up to take it down. It's like, you know, you go, you went into this, right now it's a lot, there's a lot of deals that hit the market and it, you got to compete and there's this whole, there's like 30 people looking at it, all right? But if you can kind of hack it and it falls out and you're the next one up, like, all right, let's go, that's an advantage. You know, it's- well, it's I mean- Look at the Atlanta deal, or let's say, you know, super competitive, super competitive, and someone finally wins the best and finally. Well, what happened for, how did we end up with that deal? So we ended up with this deal because I was talking to the broker, just having a casual conversation. You got to remember these brokers also, they go through so many deals. They forget about deals. So you have to ask them questions on the phone. So there's got to be something that I'm not seeing here that maybe a deal that fell out of contract, you got to kind of prod their memory to get them to think about the deals that they're not paying attention to. So this deal in particular, they stopped paying attention to because it fell out of contract two times. They're like, you know what? I don't want to deal with this anymore. We're not going to make the commission. Let's move on to something else. And I pulled it out of his memory and he said, oh, you know, actually this deal just fell out of contract during COVID. Maybe it's something you like and take a look at it. And so they sent it over to me. Why do they not pursue this? Explain to me the psychology of, of that. I don't quite because understand. They, this giant they're, listing. They're, they're trying to make commissions. So their, their job is to do volume, a volume of deals. And if they run into hurdles, they want to take the easiest route to get to the, the sale, the close. Okay. If they have a deal over here that they know is going to close really easily and there's going to be a high competition, the price is going to be driven up to the ceiling. That's more attractive to them than the deal that they've lost twice because of one reason or another. Right. But that's your opportunity to go in and get it. You got to bring it up in their head. Hey, there's got to be something that I'm not seeing that's not online. Maybe a deal that just fell out of contract. Maybe something that you're, you're just tired of dealing with. Where, is, does that exist? Is that in your pipeline? And they'll be like, oh, actually, yeah, let me send this. And then that's what happened with this one. And then I had an uninstructed shot at this deal because I didn't have, if they would have brought it and launched, relaunched it back to market, 
it would have been a different story. I would have been paying more money and I may not have won it. But because I pulled this out and I acted fast and we came in aggressive, we were able to pick it up and it was, it was pretty unobstructed in general. And then we were able to get a discount on the pricing and really good terms in general. And so, so that was a really good angle. And this was you know, a unique situation, but it, it's something that was pulled out of thin air because I asked the right questions to the broker and we moved fast. And we showed ourselves as serious players. And this is not an isolated incident. I mean, I, anecdotally, it almost seems like half the deals fall through. And if you're there and you're staying at, at the heart of it, is, is that you're really staying in touch with brokers? What is kind of like your system, your inner, your cadence, that and the style of communication? How do you stay in touch with brokers? And and how how do you do it? So I really just I put I put a lot of it on my calendar. So I have different. The best I think the easiest way to do it is to. Target the brokers in the markets that you want to build the relationships with and put, put it in your calendar. Check in with this broker, check in with this broker and actually call them, leave a message, shoot them a text. Hey, we should catch up and, and try to get on phone calls with them if you can, because that's how you're going to be able to ask the questions that you want. And then when they finally have a deal, come with knowledge. Like don't, don't just come in and like ask the basic questions. Show that you've actually researched it and you understand it. And come with like really thoughtful questions to the conversation. And they're, you know, these guys are, they have a ton of people calling them all the time. So again, you need to stand out. And so if you come with thoughtful questions and you're, you, you're building that rapport on the deal. And then if you end up landing one in the market, you need to let all those brokers, other brokers know about it. They need to know, hey, we do have a deal in Atlanta. Oh, wow. They actually got one and they're putting on a contract and they're, hey, when we close on it, I tell all the brokers again just so that it builds that demand for us uh, in general. And so that's kind of the cadence. I love that. So a reason to call the broker could be, hey, we just closed the deal. We just got it under contract. There's a deal you sent me. Checking on a deal that was closed. Any other reason that you can give someone so someone takes a 10, 15-minute call with you because you're like, hey, you just want to catch up. Broker's like, I don't have time for that. Like what, what reasons do you give a broker that they go, oh, yeah, let's hop on the phone? We're coming out and we're going to be really aggressive on our next deal. We're really going to come out with attractive terms and an attractive timeline and more than we've ever done before. And I love to tell you about our next plan, our next play, and kind of leave it open in their head. And they're like, hmm, that, that sounds interesting. Or, or I'm partnered with someone. You know, if, if you don't, maybe if you don't have the track record, I'm partnered with someone and they want to be really aggressive. And I think it's going to be interesting to you. Can I talk to you a little bit about that and see if there's an alignment with something you got coming out to market? You it like that, that's leave it a little bit of a mystery and then they'll mm -hmm. jump on a call and then you can dive in and, Hey, you know, tell them what you want and see if they can produce. Yeah. Love it. Anything that, uh, I like the mystery part anything that uh, informs them that you're, you're going to be closing on that next deal that will get them very interested. Now let's, let's shift slightly here through COVID. Obviously, you know, people always go, like, Oh, should I, should I wait? Should I, you know, until, you know, and, you know, there are some of our peers who are maybe, you know, waiting a little bit and kind of not doing anything. We have decided not to pursue that route. Instead, we have changed our underwriting a little bit. We haven't changed our strategy, but our underwriting a little bit. Can you talk about some of the ways that we had adjusted our underwriting, you know, for the current times? Yeah. A lot of the underwriting falls back on what you can do with the debt first, I think, is I think a mistake that a lot of operators are making right now is they're not understanding the new debt structures that exist. And you need to have a really good relationship with your mortgage broker or your lender 
understand the types of debt that are out there first and then back into your deal based on what's available because that's where we're seeing the most volatility in general. You're hearing that there's really good debt terms. There are, um, but you need to understand their criteria in general. So right now, for example, the product that I like the most, and there's different products, right? Before there were many products, now there's a few because of COVID. So you're gonna need to know those products really well. That is like 80%, 75 to 80% of your capital stack is in the hands of the lender. So you need to know, and what I mean by that is, if you have a $10 million deal, 70 to 80% of that rests with them. So you need to understand that product so well, and then back in your underwriting around that. And a lot of people are not paying attention to that. In addition, not just that product, you need to know it so well is how it's gonna affect your exit. You have to plan for the exit in mind and understand when you're going into the deal what that's gonna look like. Figure that out and then tailor your underwriting around that debt product. So you're, you're not sure the underwriting has to be that, that problem, but you know it's, it's one of those things that you know it's like buying an insurance. It, it was like it was like one of those things where debt is debt is debt, and we're just gonna get the cheapest one. And we didn't think about the exits, right? And so some of the stuff we did several years ago, we're like, oh my gosh, we should we would really like to hmm, exit this. We'd like to sell it. We'd like to refinance it. We added all this value, and then come to find out, we have a giant defeasance penalty of nine hundred thousand dollars on a. $3 million deal. And you're like, Oh crap, I can't, I can't refinance. I can't get a supplemental on this. You know, it's like one of those things you kind of go back. I mean, it's a great cash generation machine. It's fantastic. It's printing money. Great. But the value is in the equity and we can't get the daggone equity out. And so we're starting to pay a lot more attention to the exit. But let's talk about, talk about some of the differences in debt products. And, and when you say pay attention to the exit, how are you aligning your debt with a potential exit? So, some people like the 10-year fixed model and they want to go in with, so right now the, the main types of debt that are available in COVID era is agency debt. So Fannie or Freddie. Fannie is fixed rate loans, long-term low interest rate, high leverage with no ability to take any CapEx and put it on the lender. Okay. And then Freddie is similar, but they offer a floating rate. So you can get what's called a 10 seven or 10 year arm. And that allows you to exit a deal after the first year for only 1% versus having a large prepayment penalty. Okay. Arm sounds risky. It sounds like what we got ourselves in trouble in, uh, in 2008. You could look at it that way, except really cool caveat about that is that you can do what's called a cap. You can buy a cap on the interest rate. And what that allows for is you're stimulating a fixed rate, fixed interest rate, but you have the benefit of exiting at any time that you like after the first year for only 1% fee. Now, think about this. If you lock yourself into a 10-year fixed rate loan and the operation doesn't work out the way you thought it was going to, but you still have the opportunity to make money by selling and doing good by your investors and they're gonna love you for it. Anyways, let's say you wanna sell in year two. Well. If you try to go sell it and you're in a fixed rate loan with a high yield maintenance penalty, okay, you're not going to have any profit left over because they're going to charge you a million bucks just to get out of the loan and now you're handcuffed. So you want to do well by your investors, but because you chose the wrong product up front, it, it's not going to work. So I put a lot of value on flexibility in general. If I can work any kind of flexible loan that makes sense, I'm gonna to try to go for that over long-term fixed rate just because I want, I want to be able to do what I want. I don't wanna work for them. You know, so I, 
personally, right now, the best product I like is the Freddie Mac 10-year arm. Now, the caveat, why would you not do that every time? Because you're not going to get as high of proceeds necessarily as you might with Fannie. So maybe you could get 78% with Fannie Mae right now in this environment. With Freddie Mac, you can only get 75%. Okay. So that's the trade-off. So it has to underwrite to that. Right. But I think having the, that's the best option right now. If you're trying to, you know, get into a, a deal and add value, what was going on before is we could get bridge debt that's similar to the Fannie. We could actually capitalize the CapEx budget. So that was very attractive to us before. Now those products, they exist, but they're so expensive. It doesn't even make sense to have them right now. So, you know, it's limited the inventory and what you can do, but overall people don't focus enough on the exit and what potentially could go wrong. I would rather have the flexibility to get out whenever I want than have a little bit better interest rate and a little bit more proceeds and be stuck in a deal for 10 years. Yeah, and that's right. And these caps actually end up uh, end up not being much higher than than ten year fixed. Yeah, and the, the, this is the other thing that I don't think I want to shed light on. This this is really cool. I figured this out in the last deal. So one of the deals we did, they I figured out that if you do a twelve year loan with Fannie, and if you're going to do Fannie, you're going to get great great interest rate. You're going to get great leverage. There is a way to do it. We can still exit properly. Instead of going for the 10-year Fannie loan, go for the 12-year because what it allows you to do is get two supplementals so that the lender will actually grant you not one but two. And why that's beneficial is because the first supplemental will allow you to put on the deal. It's almost like simulating a refinance in a way, except it costs less. It's another loan that you can put on and that loan will displace the capital that you put into the deal. So you can take investor money and and distribute it back out. Let's say you want to sell the deal. Let's say you bought it for $10 million, okay? And it's worth 20 million at, at time of exit. And your lo- but your loan is only for 8 million. Well, you have this large gap. What person's gonna come in with 50% equity for your deal? No, you have to, then you're gonna to have to lower your purchase price to help meet that, right? So the second supplemental allows you to lever it up to a level where you can exit as, and simulate it the same way is if they were gonna go put new debt on it. Now they probably won't have IO, which is not as attractive. IO is what? Interest only. Yep. But they will have a high enough leverage so maybe they can come in at 75% LTV on the exit. And you can't get that with a 10 year. You have to go for the 12 year loan in order to get that. So that's a cool workaround that I figured out that you guys can use. So debt is something that has certainly changed. Bridge, uh, bridge debt has certainly gone gone away, at least for the for the moment. Fannie and Freddie kind of stepped up their game. I think they've become a little more a little more flexible, a little more aggressive about those things. We like. Uh, we're now paying a lot more attention to the to the exits because of that. What are some other? And that has affected the underwriting, of of course, for that as well. And and, and your point was make sure that you know your debt product and work it into the underwriting because if your LTV is lower, it's going to affect your your possible returns and your and your price. What are some other ways that we have changed our underwriting to to adapt more what's going on in the market right now yeah so first off the top of my head is uh the natural market appreciation zero you're one zero come you're, on you're garrett zero yeah dude Jeez. i mean the thing it's the market 
right now it's, it's too crazy and we don't know what's going to happen. So if the person you're looking to invest with isn't at least taking the, the year one uh, natural appreciation and putting that at zero, I would be concerned because look what's going on. You know, the performa is a prediction and we're trying to make predictions with insulation so that we can actually hit the numbers that we say and produce the returns that we say we're going to. And so that's the, the first way I think is important to make sure that that's going on. The other thing is your reversion cap rate. Uh, you want to pay attention to that. We What's do a reversion minimal- cap rate, Garrett? So it's like when you go into a deal, you're going to buy it at a certain cap rate. Okay. And then when you sell it, so let's say in the market right now, a similar vintage, and you have to pay attention to the vintage property, the location of it. Those are really the two main things is, is the, the location and the vintage. So it has to be similar. Those properties are trading at a certain cap rate. Okay. And if it's, let's say it's 5% is where it's trading right now. Well, you want to have some cushion in there. When you exit in five years, it's probably not going to be the same landscape. So in order to be conservative, we're, we're doing a minimum of 50 basis points over where the current reversion cap rate is. That's a half a percent. So at least a half a percent over where it is now. Yeah. So in your underwriting, we're using at least 5.5% on the cap rate at exit or refinance, sometimes even even higher. And this is the thing when you see, this is the, a, a mistake that a lot of past investors make. They just compare returns from one offering to another. But what's really important is the actual underwriting, which means the assumptions are made. Because if I, if I keep my reversion cap rate at 5% or even accidentally, quote, lower it, it swings the return wildly. So a half percent higher crushes the return. So which means that if we can still deliver a whatever 13, 14% whatever return with a reversion cap rate that's at least a half a point higher, that's another example where we can be conservative. And like you said, we really want to hit those numbers. We want multiple layers of margins for error in there. What what else in your underwriting that you're that might be a little different uh, to pay attention to? So one big thing that I think is very important, especially right now, are cash reserves. So you're going mm-hmm. to get the change in the market, the biggest changes, you have to come with a lot more cash to your deals. Uh, there's right now, every lender under the sun is pretty much requiring a minimum of nine months, but up to 12 months, principal and interest reserve that you have to put in escrow. It just sits there, okay? Now, you can model that in to, to get redispersed back out to investors at a certain point. You could keep it around just as an additional reserve as well if it works in your model. But we always make sure we have enough cash because there's things that maybe come up after closing on your CapEx plan that you didn't find. There's uh, different reasons why you're going to need extra cash laying around. And the worst thing that can happen is that you run out of it. So I think making sure you have enough cash reserves, minimum of 10% of the total amount that you're going to spend on the deal. But if you can do more, do more. And then just make sure you have that that ready to go. And so, you know, now there's a lot more cash coming in because you have to fund 100% of the capex with cash too. So it makes it more challenging. Luckily, the, the interest rates are low, so it helps. But that's just something that, to pay attention to um, is how much cash. And then to go with that is, you know, I like buying right now. You got to buy cash flowing deals. They they got right now the deal that we're buying right now is 99% occupied. It's cash flowing from day one. And not only cash flowing, but know your demographic 
of who, who your renters are before you get into the deal. What are those people doing? Are they just on a, all on unemployment right now? And that's why uh, the property is still cash flowing or uh, do they still have jobs? If you can figure that out, then you'll know your exposure before you're getting in. Like we know that on our asset that everybody's still working because of the, the demographic type that's, that's on site. And we, we did due diligence on that. So we know that we're in a good place. But if you find that you're going to buy property and everybody's on unemployment, it's a big risk. Garrett, I'm so glad you're on our team because you are just incessant looking for deals all the time and you'll not give up. And at the same time, uh, while we're being aggressive at making offers, we're not aggressive about underwriting. And therefore, hey, we haven't done four deals so far this year and that's okay because the one we have doing right now is super and maybe we'll do another before the end of the year or maybe we won't. So Garrett, thank you so much for being here, sharing your ninja tactics on finding deals, underwriting deals. So thanks again for being on the show. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. I hope you found that valuable. This was a little bit more of an advanced thing, but sometimes I think it's necessary to kind of get a little bit more into the into the weeds about how do you find deals? How do you underwrite them? What are we doing differently right now? And I hope you found that valuable. And I think the key thing, the, the thing that everybody has has in common who are successful is hustle. And they're doing something, a little something every single day. Now, Garrett mentioned his underwriting. You mentioned that we have this great tool called the Syndicated Deal Analyzer, which we do. And it's super affordable. And at this point, it's probably the most widely used syndication underwriting tool on the planet right now. So uh, just uh, Google Syndicated Deal Analyzer or go to syndicateddealanalyzer.com. It's super affordable, super powerful, allows you to do the simple things, super easy. And also the advanced ones, you use it in all stages of the of the deal as you, you know first make that first offer. Uh, once you get into get the LOI into due diligence and finally even closing, you can use it to create your projections for your pro formas as well. So check that out. Um, also, if you are interested in investing with the investment firm Nighthawk Equity, nighthawkequity.com and click on the join button because you can join our investment club. Now, why do we do that? Because we have a, we want to get to know you first, right? So you're going to fill out a short form. You're going to schedule a call with us. We'll have a conversation. We'll answer your questions. We'll make sure there's a fit for you. And then you're in the club and we can then share with you some upcoming investment opportunities. Like I said, we just uh, closed a round on the 130 unit in Atlanta and Garrett is feverishly working on the next deal. So make Make sure you hop on board and check that out. Great. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Catch you guys next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.